Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, John, for his support, as well as all my other Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support the podcast financially and gain access to exclusive companion mini-episodes, articles, group Zoom meetings, two brand new series of interviews, or even conducting lessons, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, where you will find six different levels of subscription, starting at just £5 a month. Alternatively, go to justgiving.com, search for a mic on the podium, and make a one-off donation there. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a German conductor who has been through the German Kapellmeister system, going on to be chief conductor in Munich and Bern, Switzerland. He's also known for his work with the Chineke Orchestra here in the UK. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Kevin John Edusay. Kevin, it's wonderful to see you and speak to you today. How are you? Good, Mike. It's great to talk to you. Are you in Germany at the moment? Yes, I'm in, in Munich, Germany right now. It's uh, super snowy outside. I just uh, took my kids to the kindergarten and came back to, to do this podcast with you. Well, at, at least we're in a similar state. I, I'm in snowy Birmingham at the moment. So for those <laughs> listeners later, when this episode comes out, you'll be able to work out when this was. Um, talking of kids, let's go right back um, and talk about when music first came into your life. You from a a musical family at all um how did it manifest itself what were the earliest musical instruments that you played well i'm i'm not from a musical family per se uh, my parents aren't musicians uh, they also don't play any um instruments but nevertheless classical music played a a great and very important role in our family life um uh, i i can remember my father coming home from work from the hospital where he would work as a surgeon and he would uh, sit down in his chair in the living room and uh, put on his uh, iconic Dieter Rams design bronze stereo and and listen to classical recordings. Um, I remember uh, the cover of uh, Carlos Kleiber Freischütz's uh, <laughs> recording with the Staatskapelle Dresden, uh, the Deutsche Grammophon cover of that really vividly. And um, so, yes, uh, that was very important in our family life. Um, actually, everything changed um, when my grandmother started to live with us. Um, my parents had built a house and uh, she had an apartment, a separate apartment within that house. And she had been a professional uh, opera singer. She was Ooh. born in 1912 and uh, had worked until the war breakout um, broke out. And um, and that was a major influence for us. Mm. I bet. Um, my parents thought it would be great if she could teach us uh, at the piano. So she, they, they, they bought a, a piano for us. It turned out it was actually a, a pretty bad idea because my, <laughs> my grandma was, was probably the opposite of a pedagogue, you could say. Mm. Uh, she was super strict. Uh, even in her old days, she had crystal clear, perfect pitch and if we would hit a wrong note, she would shout from the kitchen, no, it should be a G flat, you <laughs> idiot, you know? And uh, so in my uh, f sort of rebellion, uh, I 
that wasn't wasn't sort of my way of 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 doing music and uh later got a teacher also a piano proper piano teacher but also that didn't really work out for me i um so when i entered my sturm und drang phase uh <laughs> with uh being 12 or 13 years old uh my obsession uh was becoming a a, a rock drummer and a, and a rock star uh, so I pulled out all the pens and pots uh, uh, in in my mother's kitchen and uh, had a probably quite nerve-wracking scheme of practicing on those pens and pots until she um, sent in a, an, an application for the music, local music school. Well, uh, going back on something there, the, uh, the amount of times I've heard stories about people who are taught by their family members um, musical uh, lessons, uh, either piano or violin or whatever else, and it not going well. I mean, I decided early on that I wasn't going to teach any of my daughters. Um, and I, obviously, if they ask advice, but I wasn't going to be their violin teacher. Um, and uh, I think I'm I'm right in this fact. Uh, I know some people do very well and they're taught by their parents or their grandparents or whatever, but I. Uh, they're few and far between in my experience. Would you say that? I I, I totally agree on this one. Uh, I <laughs> decided to not become the music teacher of my children as well. So, so rock drumming, but I'm assuming that at some point turned into percussion, as in classical percussion. And uh, therefore, were you ever interested in being, you know, uh, a marimba soloist or, or was it straight away orchestral percussion for you? Um, how did that happen, if it happened? Well, actually, um, since uh, I had come to a certain level of playing piano by then, um, very early I discovered, well, it would be great to combine my skills of uh, being able to read in different clefs, uh, being familiar with notation, and my desire mm. to play percussion instruments. And uh, therefore, I sort of switched to classical percussion very early on and um, uh, dropped that wish of, of becoming a rock drummer and uh, was <laughs> actually really absorbed by the pos possibilities of uh, that I would dis discover by being able to um, play in an, in an orchestra. So I became the timpan mm. timpanist of, of our school orchestra. I played percussion in ensembles and also played played the piano and, and kept kept playing the piano at the same time. So yes, I tried to um, uh, to use all those influences. And at the same time, for me, um, the orchestra became more and more important as uh, not only a social, a group I could 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 be part of, but also um, as a, a a language, a musical language that I that I'm still super familiar with, of course. Um, mm. But but that that really resonated with me, and uh, I I really got obsessed um, by classical music in uh, and symphonic repertoire in, in particular. At this point, normally I would ask you about your experiences in youth orchestras with conductors. But then in a previous podcast, I spoke to Christopher Seaman, who you may know was the timpanist with the London Philharmonic Orchestra for a while. And, and therefore my question is gonna be slightly different to you in the fact that, of course, you had early experiences with conductors uh, and conducting in youth orchestra, but then being the timpanist, you almost are the second conductor in the room when you have something with rhythm. Um, 
how did you enjoy that role? And do you think looking forwards or looking back now at your early musical life that being a timpanist really uh, excited you about conducting in any way? Yes, I think uh, there's something um, about timing of of uh, the whole orchestra and of course the, the bass instruments, so the, the double bass section and the timpanist play a very crucial role in that so when mm. to place a chord and 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 also how um influences the, the complete orchestra and uh, i mean you're you're a conductor yourself you have you must have experienced that um also the reaction time of mm. of an orchestra um depends uh, in for those ma major tutti entrances many uh, uh, for for a great deal on on the timpanist yes mm. so um there is uh and, and there should be a very good connection between uh, the conductor and the timpanist, yeah. Well, it, it made me think again about uh, my dear friend Peter Hill, who uh, has appeared on a Patreon episode um, of one of my other podcasts. But I remember him telling me when I first started conducting, he said, if I can give you one piece of advice, make friends with the timpanist. You don't want the <laughs> timpanist as an enemy. you know. <laughs> uh, and, and he's right. Even if you don't make friends with them, but at least musical friends with them. And, you know, um, sure. if, to have them on board is a really important thing. Um, mm -hmm. You go on and study percussion, but also, I, I love this, you studied percussion, sound engineering and conducting at the Berlin University of the Arts. How was that split time-wise? Uh, and, and I'm assuming this is where you first encountered a conducting teacher or mentor. Who was that? And, and um, in what style did they teach? I often ask, you know, were they very much score and music prep based or were they very much stick technique based uh, or a overall holistic approach? It's actually quite quite a bit more complicated than that. Um, when I was uh, fifteen or sixteen, I I um, uh, did the entrance examination for classical percussion for the youth program of the Conservatory of Detmold, mm. which is quite close to my hometown Bielefeld. And in Detmold, there is uh, a music call a course called Tonmeister. Mm. Um, so that's uh, a course designed for um, people who not only work as a sound engineer, but also as a music producer. So it's mm. also very, um, it, it tends also to be very, uh, a very good musical course with very high standards of um, being able to to pl uh, play f uh, scores. Uh, so score playing is, is one of the, uh, the prerequisites you have to you have to be able to to, to read scores. You have to know the the symphonic repertoire, um, and they also have a very strict entrance ex exam for that. So I, when I was fifteen or six, uh, fifteen I enrolled. No, I, I was sixteen. I, I enrolled in that um, uh, youth program, and I, so I got to meet other students of that Tonemeister course and I found it so interesting that my decision was very clear that I wanted to become a tone master and from that mm. point onwards uh, because you you needed to to have a repertoire and you needed to to be able to score play uh, from then on uh, my obsession for symphonic music went on by uh, going to the local library uh getting scores piano scores listening to complete operas uh listening through uh probably the major uh classical repertoire on on cd i'd say uh before i was 18 i i 
I had listened to all of the Haydn uh, symphonies, uh, Beethoven, Brahms, <laughs> um, most of the Mozart symphonies, and so on. So I, I really made this a sort of sportive element <laughs> in my in my hunger for for music. And I got into that program, um, but they had a two-year waiting time for that. And um, since I had also uh, successfully done entrance examinations in The Hague at the Royal Conservatory and in Amsterdam, um, I, in, I started to study sound engineering and classical percussion as two majors um, in The Hague, first, mm. first of all. Uh, and, well... My way to conducting also started there because I had just started with those two major subjects, two major studies, but there was an orchestra project led by Jacques van Steen, oh. uh, and I, <laughs> I, I can clearly remember uh, me joining as many rehearsals as I could. Uh, he was conducting Brahms' first symphony. And uh, maybe it also was because I had a crush on a on a blonde uh, Dutch violist at that time. But it <laughs> uh, but but the combination of Brahms and my crush and uh, and Jacques' phenomenal uh, conducting uh, made it that I decided I need to become a conductor. Um, mm. And one day after the the concert, I knocked on Jacques' uh, teaching uh, classroom door. And uh, told him, well, my name is Kevin. I want to be become a conductor. And he, uh, I mean, you 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 know him. You you've yes. met him. He's yes. an impressive uh, figure, almost two two meters tall. He is, yeah. And he stood in front of me and said, well, um, there are absolutely no work opportunities. Uh, you should go to to Germany and um, uh, and good luck with it. And <laughs> I think. Knowing in hindsight, knowing Jacques, he was sort of testing me uh, mm. um, there because he wanted to to know whether I really wanted it or whether it was just some, you know, some idea I, uh, a student that had just started had. Mm. And for myself, that was uh, actually a, a quite important very short meeting there because um, I asked, I had to ask myself, okay, uh, Kevin, you have really just started. Maybe it's good to finish the other studies first. And if you find out in a couple of years, you still want to be a conductor, you can still do that. Yes. And um, uh, that's when I started uh, together with three other composers. I started an ensemble for contemporary music because I thought, well, um, I need to find out whether uh, I'm any good at this. I took yeah. private lessons also for score playing and analysis also on top of what I already had um, in my other courses and um, learned by doing it, actually. And yeah. then... Um, yeah, almost four years. Yeah, I think four years later, after my orchestral diploma in, in classical percussion, I immediately did the entrance examination for conducting. And uh, I was super happy to, to be part of that great class of, of Jacques van Steen and uh, at Spaniard, the other teacher. Mm. And uh, and I really had the, the sort of homecoming feeling and <laughs> thought, well, this is it. Uh, go for it. Well, I'm going to come to Jack and Ed in a minute, but 
this podcast is going to be full of firsts. Um, and I'm pretty sure you're the first person I've spoken to who's shown any interest or, or even qualified as a Tonmeister. Um, that must have given you a real, uh, from the very beginning, and not only listening to all of those CDs and all of the Haydn symphonies, whatever, you must have a level of oral training and a level of oral listening to do that job that, you know, most instrumentalists don't think of or don't, you know, they listen hard to themselves, but are they listening quite so much to everybody else? That must stand you in so much good stead now being a conductor because you have the level of, of listening through being a tonmeister where, you know, you're listening for one chord that's out of tune that therefore cannot be sent out on a CD or, or, a, or a tiny little, you know, clip of a horn note on a chord and you think you can pick that out and go, yeah, that, that we cannot do that. We need to do another take. Do you think that's been a real bonus for you going forward now as a, as a professional conductor? I think it has been has been beneficial to my conducting, but mm. I would stress that conducting is something completely else. So um, oh, yes. yeah. when you, I mean, we as conductors, we on the podium, we stand at the spot with the worst balance. <laughs> uh, you, you know, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the the orchestra is completely out of balance if you uh, at the conducting podium um, at our, our at our desk actually, and so we have to. Uh, translate that um, wrong balance to what the sound behind our backs might be. Mm. Um, so that's a completely different role, I find, and that also comes through training and stepping also back, letting someone else conduct. Um, and this is years of training, and that's something that is completely different from from a tone master's job, of course. But yes. Um, of course, uh, the 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 whole concept of how an orchestra can sound and should sound, and also how to uh, maybe fix uh, problems. Um, that that way of thinking is is uh, has been very important for my conducting as well. You're so right, and again, another first. We've never really discussed that that job that we have of. Well, it's it's informed guessing, I would call it, of what you're listening to and what it sounds like out in the hall. And that changes from hall to hall to hall. I mean, I've spent an awful lot of time um, either playing for 20 odd years or conducting in Symphony Hall in Birmingham. Um, and actually, my my own knowledge of it grew through being an assistant conductor by going out and listening and then realizing, well, what I hear on the podium bears no relation to what's out in the hall <laughs> and that's the best hall yes. in the united kingdom and one of the best in europe if not you know top five or ten in the world it still bears no relation to what you hear when you're stood on the podium it, it, and it's a fascinating thing that i think some people who listen to this podcast wouldn't know or maybe would be aware of that what you hear you know you i turn around and say to the seconds or violas please play up there and they go well we're already playing i said well I, you won't hear it out there um and and it's it, it is a fascinating thing we have to do isn't it Absolutely. And I think uh, the difference between the sound uh, where you stand and how it sounds in the hall in opera is even yes. much greater. Yeah. Uh, so the sound from the pit um, is, is totally different from what you hear in the audience. So when you do opera productions, you have to uh, have some some good ears also in the hall uh, and a good, good, good way of communicating with your assistants to make the to make it work, actually. Mm. Well, I promised we would briefly look at um, Jack and Ed at the Hague Conservatory 
Um, were they a sort of, uh, I mean, in golfing terms, it's called ham and egg. You know, you get uh, one does one thing and the other does the other. Did they ham and egg it between them or um, how they taught, you know, was one much more based on stick technique and, and, and rehearsal technique and the other was much more into score study. How did they define their roles? Uh, Ed and Jacques are um, completely different types of conductors, I'd say. Mm. So they didn't really have to... Um, stress uh, the differences between them. It wasn't r really meant to be like this. It, it just happened, uh, yeah. and, uh, uh, and 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 we benefited from it. Uh, another teacher was also Kenneth Montgomery. He was also mm. attached to the program, um, so we had a lot of uh, influence. And uh, probably also at the very beginning of of uh, of our studies of our course, um, you know, you're you're dealing with more basic level things that uh, any good conductor probably can can teach you and then mm. later on you just dis you discover what specific things you you really want to find out about um, your teacher's uh, way of doing it um, in between then I um, I went to uh, Berlin to the University of Arts. Um, had a had a had an intermezzo there with another teacher, um, because I wanted to find out how conducting is taught in Germany, in my home country. Um, as you know, the German way of of uh, uh, and the 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 whole system of of teaching and also later to developing a career in conducting is is different from other countries. Um, and I I had the feeling I I need to find out what it is to to be in back in Germany again. Mm. Well, again, you've inspired me to ask uh, a question which. Sort of alluded to in previous episodes, but but never really asked quite so directly. If you consider that you know you spent uh, quite a few years with with Ed and Jack in the Hague, but if I just list the people that you've either been you either studied with or been mentored by, or probably appeared in masterclasses with, you know David Zinman in Aspen, um, then at Lucerne Festival Academy, there's Pierre Boulez and Peter Erdvers, and then other people like Mark Albrecht, Kurt Mazur, Sylvain Camberling. Um, my question to you is, how do you or how did you um, sort of take the information that these mentors were giving you and sift out or sieve away the things that you think, well, I already know this, or actually, I disisagree with that, or, or, or but, and find the nuggets of gold from these people and add it to what you'd been taught base, you know, in a basic way by Ed and Jack and by Kenneth Montgomery. When you were in these masterclasses or in these situations, were you thinking then, oh, this is this is gold? Or did it come to you much later and think, oh, do you know what what Pierre, Pierre Boulez said there, actually, I really need? Uh, how did you work that in your mind? Because I can, I can imagine, I mean, I've had a few mentors, but not that many. I can imagine it can get quite confusing, like it would do if you went for violin lessons with 10 different teachers. There's going to be some contradictory information given to you. How did you work it out? I think for every conductor, it's very important early on to uh, develop a very good sense of what you yourself want and what you stand for, what you can do and what you cannot do. Mm. Um, that's very 
essential uh, for becoming a, con a conductor because also later on in your in your career you'll get many influences you, people talk to you people judge you uh, you read recensions and uh, or reviews about your work in the papers so uh, the uh, um, you're confronted with a whole bunch of of opinions about mm. what you do, and also when you stand in front of a group of people, there are as many different opinions about what you what you're dealing with as people in the in the room. So um, you have to be self assured enough that what you have to uh, bring to the table is is uh, substantial and. Mm. Um, I can't really say how how the, how the process works. I am yes, there were people where I instantly thought this is gold. Um, mm. This is something I can directly integrate in my way of working. For example, meet, meeting uh, Peter Edvers, who's become also a very influential uh, colleague, um, or David Zinman. Um, Others, uh, I I just watched and, and saw and and uh, and thought, okay, this is this is absolutely a way of doing it, but th that's not my way of doing it. Mm. So, mm. yes, you have to sift out uh, mm. and and see what what uh, suits you best. Another first. Uh, in 2008, you win uh, the Dimitri Metropolis Conducting Competition. I believe it's the first time I've met a winner of that. It's not a competition I know very much about. Is it one of these that happens over a week with a jury and there's many rounds and it's whittled down? Uh, if so, how many rounds? Was it one of these incredibly complicated ones where you, you, you don't really know what you're getting until 24 hours beforehand? Um, can you remember much about it? Uh, and also, afterwards, did you get any support? I know from a couple of people, Jonathan Hayward, who won the Besançon competition, that afterwards he was assigned somebody who looked after him um, to do with finding an agent or choosing an agent, more importantly. Mm -hmm. um, how was that Metropolis competition? Um, because I don't know very much about it. Um, it was... I'm I'm not even sure whether it still exists actually because I know that uh, they ran into uh, financial troubles a couple of years after um, my uh, uh, participation also, um, but it was uh, with the Athens Radio Orchestra, mm -hmm. and it was in several rounds. Um, there was quite a lot of repertoire we had to learn, um, also contemporary pieces. Uh, I I remember. Uh, doing in the first round probably uh, the soldier's tale of Stravinsky mm. plus something else and well, that, that I would whittle down, the whittle down the competition it, uh, with the soldier's tale in round one I mean you, you're gonna lose a lot of people there aren't you <laughs> <laughs> yes I think that was the goal yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was the goal there um uh I I can I remember being the only one doing the Egmont overture in three instead of in six as it is uh, often done uh, yes. traditionally, and well, um, winning that competition for me was really quite important. Even though, from a standpoint uh, of well, 
I, I didn't have anyone who would who would advise me about later engagements, for example. Mm. And also they invited me back for a project, but there wasn't a complete scheme that they had worked out of, of how you can really help something, some, someone further and uh, with their career. So um, it helped and it opened some doors, but it wasn't that uh, that important for my yeah. career, I'd say. Uh, one good thing came out of that, uh, that was that uh, I shortly after was invited by uh, the Staatskapelle Dresden to step in for Peter Schneider, uh, taking over uh, a production on short notice. So that was uh, really helpful for me, of course, to, to, to be there. But I'd say be be because I, I by that time also was working as a first Kapellmeister, um, my career was on a different trajectory anyway. Well, that was going to be my question in the fact that you won that in 08, but, it, but in 04, you'd started down the road of, and we sort of touched on it earlier on, the German conducting system, this Kapellmeister system. Now, uh, our listeners, uh, again, another first, you're the first person to have really gone through this system. And it was at Theater uh, Bielefeld, which is your hometown, as you said, uh, I'm going on to become Deputy General Music Director. Um, how, what is the Kapellmeister system? How does it work? Um, uh, I'm intrigued, and I know our listeners will be intrigued, because I you know it's it's probably, possibly a word that's been dropped out in earlier uh, podcasts, and, and it's been you know glossed over or, or ignored. I really want to know what it's all about. Tell us what the Kapellmeister system is. It's brutal, Mike. <laughs> You're smiling, absolutely. but I can see in your eyes that it's, br it's brutal. <laughs> it's absolutely brutal and wonderful mm. at the same time. Mm. Um, in Germany, the, the traditional way of having a career as a conductor would be starting as a co-repetitor. Mm. So working as a pianist uh, with singers, helping to... to learn their parts, uh, coaching singers also sometimes, and, uh, and then working your way up to positions within the opera house where you get your first conducting uh, jobs. Uh, yeah. That could be leading a kid's concert or could be stepping in for another conductor, taking over uh, productions or assisting um, the, the general music director. Mm. As a Kapellmeister, you're... Um, in in that musical hierarchy of the house you're uh, let's say number two behind the general music uh, music director yeah. um and it's a very complicated role you have to fulfill because you're um part assisting for someone and for the other part you're also responsible for uh for your own uh first nights and premieres that you that and productions that you have to do so Usually at a mid-level house in Germany, you probably do three own premieres in the music theater. You probably also would uh, would be responsible for the kids' concerts. Uh, you would have maybe one or two subscription concerts uh, with this uh, within the symphonic realm, and you would also assist uh, the chief conductor or uh, music director with his three productions plus uh then taking over all the productions so that you you can you can feel probably that it's just the workload is so intense if you mm. think uh, or if you if you know that in germany most productions are done within six to eight eight weeks of rehearsal time 
and um, rehearsals start at 10 o'clock in the morning, go until 2 p.m. Then there's a four hour break and then you rehearse again from uh, from six o'clock in the evening until 10. And that goes uh, for six days in a week. And in between, you have auditions, you have to prepare things, you have concerts, you have performances. So it's like a it's a it's a massive workload you have to deal mm. with i can i remember one season where i did four premieres in the music theater and i conducted 10 operas including uh what was it again uh including madama butterfly fidelio lucia di lamamo don carlo a modern <laughs> opera Zar und zimmermann and also three or four other operas that I have forgotten about, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, when you stand in the pit and, uh, and you do those major works and sometimes, you know, it's later in the evening and you're in the third act of, of a longer opera and you turn the page and you just pray that you know what is on that page <laughs> and, and you're still, still beating in the right time. Um, that's a that's a, a wonder, wonderful feeling for a, for a young <laughs> conductor to have and also i mean it helps because when once you have done that um it there's just nothing that can scare you i i no. i must say it, it's uh, when i look now at uh, uh, uh opportunities to jump in or, or to do something on short notice uh nothing compares to the anxiety of what I experienced at being a young Kapellmeister at a German uh, provincial house. You've made me think of a question, really, because I think I might have spotted it. What you've just described probably um, encapsulates why suddenly conductors appear at the end of this system. You hear nothing about them. The reason being is that they haven't got time to go and guest conduct anywhere. I would imagine yeah. your time is spent totally in your theatre. You know, you but you did a stint in Bielefeld at home and also in Augsburg. Um, you you basically have no time to do anything else. But at the end of it, you come out of this system fully formed, ready to go, guest conducting, uh, or in the op. And now all of a sudden, people go, "Oh, well, people who are not German and not in the Kapellmeister system will go." Oh, where's this guy come from? You know, but the reason being is that you have not got time to go out and guest conduct anywhere else. I'm sure that's the case, isn't it? Absolutely. That's absolutely yeah. the case, Mike. Um, there was actually no time for, I mean, the, the Metropolis competition was the only competition <laughs> I could do. Wow. So I was lucky to win it because yeah. uh, I, I, I was invited for the Donatella Flick competition, but then... Uh, I had to step in on short notice for the music director to do uh, Aida, so I had to cancel that, and that happened <laughs> uh, numerous times. So you're you're really absorbed by the house, and that's a tricky balance to start a career if you're also interested in um, symphonic music. Um, mm. And that was my first love. Uh, that's why I became a conductor, and I luckily discovered uh how how great um opera and music theater is but but that was my main goal so i had to decide at a certain point okay um if i really want to lean more towards uh symphonic uh, repertoire i need to uh, uh cancel my job as kapellmeister and that's that's when i quit uh my job in in augsburg 
Mm. And then managed to have two roles running side by side for uh, well, three or four years where you were, you still are chief con- conductor of the Munich Symphony Orchestra. But then uh, not so long ago, you, you stopped being chief at the Concert Theater Bern, which is, um, as you just said, theatre, music and opera. Um, having, you, you were principal guest there beforehand, so you've had a relationship. So you, you managed to split your time between doing symphonic work in Munich and doing opera and theatre in Bern, um, which for me must be the, the best of all worlds and the fact that you know you can go and do a six-week run and then come back to Munich and do a couple of weeks there and then maybe fit in a guest thing is that how it worked out for you or works out for you yes uh that's that's how it worked out I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do to be uh the chief conductor of a symphony orchestra and at the same time also be a chief conductor at an opera house and uh therefore being able to combine my passion for both uh, working in the pit and on stage. And um, uh, what was, well, Ban was a sort of gift. I'd, I'd also, I'd jumped in on short notice. I'd, I'd taken over a Lucia di Lammermo performance there, uh, not knowing that they were looking for a music director for the opera house. And... Um, I had just uh, shortly after I, I started to to become chief conductor in Munich, and then they kept asking me uh, <laughs> to to come back and to conduct, and uh, that was a lovely, lovely time with a wonderful orchestra. It's it's actually uh, when I stepped in there, I hadn't heard about the the opera house and the orchestra at all, and I was astounded by the high quality of of and the, and the level that they have. Um, you must know that it's a quite small opera house in Bern. It's a it's wonderful and, and beautiful house, um, but the orchestra is quite uh, quite big. It's, it has uh, one hundred and around one hundred and ten uh, musicians, so it's it's wow. quite a big orchestra mm. with a very good level and also very with a very special sound, which um, which I truly love because Bern is maybe only 30 kilometers from where uh, the French part of of Switzerland starts. Mm. And you have uh, a German-speaking majority in the orchestra, I'd say, but you have probably more than 40 30 to 40% French-speaking musicians. And that gives that special uh, lightness and sound. I mean, it's very stereotypical what I say here, (laughs) but it's also a little bit true. uh, and it's, uh, it's, it, it gives a lightness and sound and flexibility and, and still this sort of warmth and depth of, of uh, string sound that you would, uh, would expect from a, from a German, German-speaking orchestra. Before we get to um, your proms debut, which I will get to soon, um, just going slightly over those last two topics in the fact that because you'd been a Kapellmeister and didn't have time to guest conduct, and then uh, all of a sudden you're a chief conductor of a symphony orchestra and of an opera house, so your diary is is pretty much filled before anybody can ask you to go and guest conduct. But uh, recently, in the last couple of years, years, I've seen your name pop up much more often as a guest conductor in places. I'm assuming that guest conducting doesn't fill you with quite so much 
dread as it might have done if you were younger um going and meeting an orchestra for the first time that moment when you put a downbeat down and you have no idea what's going to come back at you or when <laughs> it's going to come back at you but <laughs> how have you found um i've called it the hamster wheel of guest conducting but, uh, the hamster wheel because you know you get on it it's very difficult to get off it but the point is hamsters do actually enjoy being on that wheel so um <laughs> how uh, how have you found it and and have you had any approaches mental approaches where you know just just to make sure that you're calm enough when you first stand in front of you know the LSO or whatever it might have been how's it been for you guest conducting well I haven't really been on that hamster wheel of guest conducting because as you said uh, I was so busy doing yeah. fulfilling those two chief conductor uh, positions at the same time but um, uh, when I stopped working in Bern um, uh, those possibilities now pop up and and start to become more and more and I really enjoy it because once you're self-assured enough that you know that uh, you have the technique and and the knowledge and the repertoire to uh, to work with an orchestra then um, it's a it's an absolute gift uh, if you get the opportunity to meet new people and uh, and get to uh, get to know m more orchestras yeah. Well, um, it must either be um, as a consequence of being guest conducting, or I, I don't really know how soon you became involved with Chinike, the orchestra based uh, here in the UK, and that you conducted their first commercial recording, but also their proms debut in 2017. How important uh, is it, or was it, for you to get involved with Chinike? How did it come about? Uh, did you know um, Chi Chi, uh, the lady who set it up? What's your history with it? And, and I'm assuming you're still conducting them, uh, or you will do when we get out of this pandemic situation. I was approached by Chichi in Monaco um, in 2016, and she would uh, invite me for a project with the orchestra. And I had um, seen, I think, a clip uh, of Chinike conducted by Wayne Marshall on right. Facebook. Yeah, he did and Beethoven this, 7, I think, didn't he? Um, yes, I uh, think. One he, of the early concerts. What was the first? I think that was actually the first concert of of Chinike. Yeah. And I was uh, invited for the second concert one year later. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and happily accepted that invitation because I thought, uh, well, this would be a very personal and. Uh, and intense experience to experience to work with an orchestra that is only or mostly um, uh, with players uh, that are people of color, but also, mm. uh, I mean, it's it's a diverse orchestra, but the other way around, let's say. Yes, yes. And I can tell you, standing in front of an orchestra, I, I remember the first rehearsal that we had in London. And, you know, before the orchestra players, you know, uh, start to sit down, put out the fiddle, play a few notes. And then, you know, the whole room f uh, was uh, finally completely full of people of color. And mm. I heard the A and I was about to, to stand in front of the people. I, I was shocked that I almost couldn't couldn't talk. I was really in a sort of freeze state because... Up to that point in my musical career and in, in, in all my experiences as a as a young child, I had 
always been the only black kid and mm. black uh, classical music nerd. <laughs> and uh, to experience that sort of feeling that, oh, I'm not the only one, mm. gave me so much relief and energy and uh, that I decided at that point I would... Um, work with the orchestra whenever they they wanted me to or or, or would would need support on things or uh, uh, whatever I could do because I think it's so crucial uh, for musicians to have um, idols to have uh, people who who can influence them I found those those people like in, in in family members as my grandmother for example I could I could look up to I I I, my musical mentors like like Jacques and also my percussion teacher Wim Foss, they have been very influential. And I think this is a very, very good project to broaden and widen the scope that classical music has and to, to make it uh, more approachable for, for, um, for people of color or children of color. Mm. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, I remember that, that prom's debut. And uh, yeah, long may it continue. And long may more people be inspired to take up music or, and, or just to be involved and in listening to music uh, and through Chinake and bravo to all, if that's the right phrase. <laughs> um, one last question, and it's a question that I've asked virtually every conductor because not only do classical music lovers find it interesting, but conducting geeks really want to know. Um, when you come to learn a new score, do you have a system? Do you sit at your desk, start on page one and finish at the end? Or do you, you know, do it a different way? And when you learn a new score, are you a marker in of things? Do you use um, pencils? Do you use colored pencils, They're highlighter pens? What do you do? How do you go about it? How much time do we have, Mike? <laughs> as much as you like. Uh, I mean, you know, some people, <laughs> some people really don't write anything. What I'm learning is that a lot of you know, what we do as conductors is so varied and so different. Yes, I've had somebody said I never write anything into to you know. I've even published an article of the color system I use on my Patreon page. So you know, <laughs> tell us what do you do. <laughs> Well, I dropped uh, colors very early um, okay. because yeah. uh, for me, music on paper has a sort of aesthetic value on its own. I mm. like to see notes on paper. And yeah. if I write colors on top of that, for me, it's a, it's a layer that is, is sort of in the way of, of the music, of the text. And also I found out that when I come back to a piece and I do something again, I rather tend to have as as yeah not not no markings at all actually. Hmm. So I I I'm only using a pencil. Um and uh I do write a lot of things in the score, but um mainly let's say interpretational decisions like mm. on how i want an articulation and i and uh, what would i write into a part of a musician and um for the the repertoire up to let's say schumann and brahms i uh if i have enough time i always prepare my own orchestral music i i write my own bowings um and uh, I meticulously prepare my material. So everything that I put into in the players' parts, in the orchestral parts, is also in my score uh, mm. so that I have a, a really clear reference of what, uh, 
the player has in front. And then um, in, in terms of learning uh, a score for me is very important is, is to do an analysis based on um, the phrase length and mm. and uh, musical periods and I have uh, an own system how I how I divide this and very often I also write underneath like four plus three three plus four two 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 and so on so that I get a clear sense of of how the structure is made and you find out uh, or I found out that a lot of composers also play around with this um, mm. I mean probably the most uh, advanced composer in this is Mozart how he uses different phrase length and period lengths to to tell something um, so this is this is like a first step uh, I'd mm. say and then later I sort of peel off layer by layer of that composition I look at specific harmonic progressions and transitions and how is a modulation done and um, and then I really go into details and uh, uh, and define how I want this to sound and uh, you'll you'll I'll I'm not working at the piano too much. I, I use the piano uh, mainly for harmonic um, things. If I really can't hear a chord and, and I, I, I will play that. Um, um, or if, I, if I'm unsure about some transpositions, awkward things, you know, um, then I'll, I'll check at the piano. But mainly I work at the desk and I do a, a lot of uh, half internal humming and singing, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd say. So I... <laughs> I I really certainly when I do opera I I sing through every part and I really also uh, define how I would breathe um, and put that also in in the score so that I have a sort of basis when I meet a singer that I can also give him a set of options that would be more in line with my sort of interpretation so we have a sort of ground on which to discuss. And then yes, I as I said, I um, I try to to prepare music as much as possible. Certainly now with Corona, I'm I'm working a lot uh, on uh, orchestral parts. I just finished uh, my own set of, of Brahms two, and I'm uh, I, I, Schumann's second symphony, uh, which I hopefully will be. Uh, um, doing with the uh, Royal Scottish uh, uh, Northern, uh, what's it called? RSNO? Royal yes. Scottish Northern Orchestra? Nas- Royal Northern National Scottish Orchestra. Orchestra. National Royal Orchestra. Scottish Royal National Scottish Orchestra. National Orchestra. <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah. out there. RSNO. <laughs> um, so, so that's that. What what's keeping me busy uh, also during Corona and mm. um, and I, I must say uh, learning scores is so much fun for me. It's um, I really love it, and uh, and I, I'm doing it also to to stay sane in these times. <laughs> yeah, uh, while well, I'm doing this podcast to stay, stay sane, um, and in really enjoyed chatting to everybody and finding out that question or the answer to that question always fascinates me because everybody does it differently. Every time I speak to a conductor, it's different. Um, what's what's your way of doing it, actually? I, I, I generally do much the same with, you know, I will start with a big overview of the score, flicking through it, not making any markings at all. I then might do some historical research and find out when it was written, what the composer's life was, uh, what was happening in the composer's life whatever. I may then listen to a couple of seminal recordings, but again, the pencil is not even in my hand. 
and then I'll go from the very beginning and I'll work my way through it. But I do use colours and I, I think for me, the writing in of things and information makes me learn it better. So, I mean, there have been times I remember, you know, you were talking about turning over a page and not hopefully knowing what's on the other side. I know what's there because I remember writing it in, if that makes sense. You know, that's, a, yeah. that's yeah. my way of assimilating the information. I do similar things with phrase structure, but actually I use a, a, a set of geometric symbols to show that it's a three bar phrase or a four bar phrase or a, you know I'll use um, triangle shapes and bracket shapes and whatever and, and it mm -hmm. sort of helps me assimilate it um, but that's how I do it and and you know again I might go to I don't play the piano very well but I might go to the piano and try something out I've got a violin on my desk I might pick it up and try a bowing out um, but then as an ex-violinist, I don't ever, I very rarely prescribe Boeing's to orchestras because each orchestra has a different idea of Boeing's. And as a fiddle player, you know, the amount of times somebody would bring their, their parts and the leader would change the Boeing and then change it back again afterwards. Uh, that sort of thing happens. So, you know, I, I'm less mm -hmm. fussy about Boeing's, but then maybe that's the way I played the fiddle, if that makes sense. You know, I was... Mm -hmm. I always thought, well, I, I should be able to make the same sound going up or down. Mm -hmm. But that's how I do it. And and but then, you know, I've had other conductors coming on here and say, if I if I wrote anything into my score, I wouldn't know it at all. Um, you know, yeah. And then other people who use even more colours than me. Uh, and it's very, very, you know, by the it's like the, the old George Schulte. If you look at a George Schulte score, you, you'll be lucky to find any printed material underneath all of the colours. It looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, and, and, you know, he didn't have a bad career, so it must have worked for him. Um, so, yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. Um, and I a think question the, 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 uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you here. No, I think the, uh, I, I agree on you, uh, with you on, on uh, the process of writing also uh, helps me to, to know that I that I have thought about something mm. and, and makes is, is a very, uh, uh, yeah, almost haptical, uh, event so that when I write something in, there's also no excuse anymore <laughs> to, to, yeah. to not know what, what yeah. is there. Yeah. And, um, but, but as you said, uh, those markings probably become less important once you are th finished with that process yes. and, and you stand there. You don't, I don't need any markings that indicate me that I have to give a, a certain entrance or something. It's, it's, uh, I, I don't need that sort of information. Uh, it's, it's more about interpretation. And um, in contemporary music, it might be a little bit different. I have a very... Um, refined system of of um indicating how subdivisions are conducted if you if you uh for example when i did uh, nixon in china by john adams or something you can and you have a system where you can really safely rely on so that if um if you turn the page <laughs> and there is this <laughs> awkward part change then that you know you're you're completely self even if your muscle memory is is uh is not giving you the right clues. Well, I, I, I would imagine in Nixon in China, because I don't know it, um, I know bits of it, I don't know it all, but I would imagine it's much like a discussion I had with another conductor about Magnus Lindbergh. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking to Dalia Stasevska. You know, the, the, there are these mathematical relations between one section and the next, where, you know, whilst you're conducting in one tempo, you have to be subdividing in your head, maybe thinking of quintuplets against what you're conducting to be mm -hmm. able to get the next tempo. And yes. I, I would think that if I hadn't, if I didn't write those in, 
I might get to that time change or that meter, that tempo change and think, oh, is this the quintuplet one or is this the, the, the 16th note one or is this the triplet one? I yeah. would want to know exactly that, you know, I must be thinking three bars ahead, fives against threes, you know, that sort of thing to be able to get the maths right. Um, so, you know, hats off to those who don't, who don't write that sort of stuff in. Um, I need to, and I'm not ashamed to say it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. At this point, I usually ask the conductors if there is anything else they want to talk about, and Kevin asked me if I had ever worked with the American conductor David Zinman. His reasons for asking me and the following 10-minute discussion about the art of accompanying soloists in both concerti and in the Opera House has been made into a Patreon-exclusive companion mini-episode. For just £5 a month, you will gain access to this episode and all of the other previous mini-episodes as well as a monthly bulletin podcast, a monthly interview with a prominent figure in the classical music world, articles, essays, and much more. Details of how to subscribe are in the show notes below, and it's very quick and easy to join. Now, it's time for the all-important 10 questions. Kevin, it's 10 questions time. Every conductor's favourite bit, possibly, maybe not, who knows. Um, And I always start with the first two. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? There is a very particular sound in string playing, um, orchestral string playing, when um, the the higher strings play in the, the upper registers, Let's say first, second violins have a, a, a line in unison, can be also a wonderful atonal line, melody or something. And you hear that um, noise of the strings uh, and the bow hair. And you hear that sort of uh, yes. sound in the orchestra. And that, that is a sound that um, I absolutely love. And uh, uh, yeah, the sound that I totally hate is um uh, the sound of uh cutlery uh dropped uh, on our wooden floor by uh, our little children i absolutely hate that <laughs> and it happens all the time every meal someone drops drops uh, their knives or spoons or whatever if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing i probably would spend uh, my time with my family if uh if out in the nature uh just having a walk uh being somewhere on a on a mountain uh anything that that is uh within yeah anything together with them and uh if i was alone i probably would be scuba diving um Oh, wow. uh, in my dry suit um uh, looking up uh, watching my ascending bubbles to the surface sunlight from above and and hopefully being able to see mountain tops if i'm in a mountain lake what a wonderful answer um it's always something i fancy doing but never had the guts to so <laughs> actually being an asthmatic <laughs> i'm probably not allowed to either um then the next one uh you can have more than one obviously who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear uh it would be uh, Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, um, I think, uh, who, who has been such an influential conductor, uh, one of the first conductors who, who used the baton um, consistently, I think, if I'm informed correctly. And uh, without Felix Mendelssohn, 
uh, we probably or maybe we pieces as the the great C major symphony by Schubert or uh, St. Matthew's Passion or other pieces by Berlioz would not be in our repertoire in the in the way that they are. So mm -hmm. yes, uh, I think very uh, influential conductor of the past. Another first. Nobody's mentioned Mendelssohn. Wonderful. Um, uh, the question that most conductors don't like, uh, I don't know why. Nobody's told me why they don't like it. I mean, Daniel Harding think, thinks it's cruel or thought it was cruel. Uh, and others go, oh, geez, Mike, do you really want me to answer this? Um, and who would be a favorite current conductor? I think it's it's not not cruel at all. I mean, there are so many colleagues that I really admire for what they're doing. So it's uh, um, I'm very happy to answer that question. Um, uh, for me, when I was younger, Nicolas Sanoncourt was a major uh, figure, major source of influence. I really um, admired what he was doing a lot. Um, then later, uh, John Elliott Gardiner has been uh, permanently uh, a mm. great influence. I, I, I think I know probably 80 to 90% of all his recordings. And I find that um, I have a very strong relationship to his idea of, of musical tempi. Um, mm. I can really relate to that. And um, who else? Um, oh, I, I find very, very exciting what the Belgian conductor Jos van Immersel does with his band Anima Eterna Brüche. Um, so they, they play on um, uh, period instruments and I think they they arrived now at George Gershwin's music, but uh, very inspiring, fantastic uh, recordings of uh, the music of, of Debussy, Schubert, uh, as I said, Gershwin, um, and I think also Mussorgsky. I think there's also a recording of uh, pictures of an exhibition. Um, uh, and I find Francois-Xavier Roth very, very inspiring. I don't mm. know how he does it, but he achieves a very typical sound from every orchestra he's working with. Um, I find that fantastic. And I like his repertoire choices because he's... Um, also uh, having a very wide scope on, on what is possible uh, in within classical music. Of the younger generation, I think Andres Nelson is just fantastic. I, f I find he has the, the sound of the orchestra almost glued to his body. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you, you, must have, you, must, you must have performed uh, many times with him, I guess. And uh, I have yes, always... I, I played, yeah. Uh, the last um, six years of my playing career was under Andrus at the CBSO. And yeah, I, the wonderful phrase you just used, the sound is sort of glued to his body. As a player, I was never conducted by somebody quite so physical as Andrus um, in the way he conducts. And it yeah. does manifest itself in the way that you play. Very spontaneous, uh, takes risks all of the time. Um, and as an orchestral player, I love that. Um, you know, you had no idea when you got to uh, a traffic island or a roundabout whether you were going to go round it clockwise, anti-clockwise, or just straight over the middle of it um, and, and uh, crashing into cars as you went. You just never had any idea what was going to happen. And it was fun, you know, so uh, really good choice. <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Technically, um, 
Stockhausen's Gruppen for three orchestras. Uh, because yes. it puts you, it's, it's, I mean, you'll get there. It's, it's not that difficult, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it puts the conductors also in the role of chamber musicianship uh, or mm. chamber musicians, because you have to interact with the two other um, conductors uh, very closely. So um, uh, I had the, the opportunity to do this piece within the Lucerne Festival um, and I had two great other conductors, Pablo Heras Casado and Lin Liao, and we would uh, for hours and hours practice with our metronyms to get it right. And, uh, and we got it right. <laughs> so um, probably technically that's, that was the, one of the hardest pieces. Uh, emotionally, I'd say uh, Tristan und Isolde, um, because uh, after those uh, couple of hours in the pit, I never felt that exhausted. And uh, whenever I conducted that piece, I just wanted to walk straight home, didn't want to talk to anyone else, just wanted to have silence. And um, and it re it's a piece that really humbles me because I think it's a piece that you can uh, work on forever. Uh, mm. And But there's one particular piece I have a... Uh, I'd say love and hate relationship with, and that is uh, Mozart's uh, "Die Entführung aus dem Serai," the the abduction okay. from the Seraglio. Um, well, I've I've yeah. done that piece in four different productions. Uh, three of them were my, my own productions, and the first time I did the piece, it was it was a complete disaster. Uh, audience hated the production. Um, I think I was musically not to a point uh, where I really could could have a good good grip on 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 the on the music. So two years later, I'm doing that production again, and I thought by myself, okay, um, I've done this piece piece of cake now, um, <laughs> and another disaster actually, uh, oh completely completely different staging. Uh, also didn't work out. People hated it up to a point where after the premiere, there was still booing um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when you know, the orchestra had already left the pit. Oh, um, my God. Then I had a sort of good experience with the piece uh, conducting it at the Staatskapelle Dresden uh, in a wonderful production. Uh, and then as music director in Bern, uh, did a fourth production with the American um, director Lydia Steyer, where I finally had the idea, okay, now I know how this piece works. But this, I mean, it, this, it took me quite a long time to figure it out. And uh, I think also among the Mozart operas, is it's really, and they are all very, very difficult, don't get me wrong, but I think this is one of the most difficult ones. If you pick a wrong tempo, it, it, a, number, a complete musical number doesn't work. If you, if you have bad staging, the piece doesn't work. If you have singers who can't speak the text, you have, uh, you have problems. It's, there are so many things that can make this piece go wrong. So definitely the hardest piece I've ever done. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I'm an absolute coffee nerd, so I always bring fresh beans, um, maybe an AeroPress, that's a device where you can produce fantastic filter coffee, 
or um, a Hario V60 for the coffee nerds out there. That's a pour-over <laughs> device and the Porlex mini hand grinder. So you'll find me grinding my beans in the in the hotel room. And uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll make some fresh coffee and then I'm I'm ready to go. That is nerdy. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful, though. Um, I'm nerdy in various various other away from music things, and yeah, uh, get me talking about watches. I can reel off serial numbers and all sorts of things as well. So that's wonderful. <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Being away from families so often. And yeah. certainly if you have uh, smaller kids uh, where the, their development is so fast, it's, it's really um, uh, terrible to, to come back uh, one week later from an engagement and then, then s discover that you, your kid has learned something very, uh, some, something important and you couldn't witness it. And also um, when you're away and travel, uh, you have so many impressions and new ideas and not to be able to really share them firsthand mm. together with your partner or your family is, is, uh, is, is, is sometimes really difficult. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? That's a very simple answer. I'd be a doctor. I'd be a surgeon. Is this because, um, did you say your father was a Doctor yes, I, I come from a yeah. from a family. My my father is a surgeon. My elder sister is a surgeon. I'm married to a gynecologist. Um, so I uh, very simple answer, straight answer. I'd be a doctor for sure. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Uh, since I'm married uh, to an Austrian. Um, it, yes, it probably would be a mushroom. Oh, what's it called? It's called Schwammerl Gulasch in Austrian. Um, so it's a mushroom, mushroom gulasch, maybe. Mm, that, that sounds it's good. The, yeah, made from from Eierschwammern. Those are those yellow mushrooms you find very often in uh, in the mountains. Uh, you can mm. you can go and look look for them yourself uh, and collect them, which 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 is what I love. So um, I think they're called. Chanterelle, is that possible? Is that a is that a mushroom? Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's made with uh, fresh herbs um, and uh, white wine, probably, and uh, and dumplings, knödeln. Ooh. So it's a Schwammergulasch with knödeln. And uh, probably I would drink a typical Austrian white wine, like a Grüner Feldliner, with it. Oh, I absolutely love Austrian and German food, and that sounds wonderful. Um, really, really wonderful. <laughs> it's approaching lunchtime. It's, I'm, I'm getting <laughs> getting hungry now. Um, Kevin, what an absolute joy it's been. I've loved chatting to you. So many firsts in the podcast today. And I hope when this is all over, we can sit down and maybe have a bowl of that goulash. That sounds amazing. I will, I will definitely make that goulash for you, um, <laughs> and I will try to collect fresh mushrooms not the wrong ones for you so that we end up <laughs> don't end up in the in the hospital at the end but mike it's been a such a pleasure to talk to you a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson 
Next time, I chat with a conductor who was born in Russia, but later moved to Finland, where he studied at the Sibelius Academy, before going on to have jobs with three different Finnish orchestras. He's also principal conductor with an orchestra in Spain, and has a very high-profile career as a guest conductor with some of the world's top orchestras. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>